For September 11th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 480. Jason is not trying to scare you. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together. And when we hang out together, we like to talk about our favorite movies, our favorite TV, music, books. Uh, and today we're talking, it's, it's the clown cast. It's the clown cast, and not just because I'm on it. I'm your host, Matt Rather, but I'm also joined by another clown, another Matt. Matt Belinky. Hey, Matt. <laughs> hey, you know, if you aren't covering Insane Clown Posse on, on TFT this week, then you're missing a real opportunity. We could have Clown Week. Do you remember back in the in the early days of overthinking it, back when we were young and had nothing but time, uh, and we would do whole theme weeks of overthinking of overthinking things? We would have like 10 articles on Back to the Future or Karate Kid or, or so, something like that. So this is absolutely true. In the months leading up to, to September, I was trying to get people interested in doing some sort of chumbawamba retrospective because September 1st was the 20th anniversary of the release of Tub Thumping, which I consider to be like the definitive song of my 90s experience. I don't know what that says about me. And it turns out Chumbawamba's released an ungodly number of albums, and I was trying to convince everybody that we should do like a real full, you know, deep dive into the Chumbawamba back catalog and sort of fail to get that off the ground. Aren't they? I mean, they, they were a band, but they were also kind of like an anarcho punk, uh, sort of alternative society collective, right? Like they were, you know, I don't know. They were like, uh, they were like green day, but for the expropriation of private property. Which, you know, it's funny. I think that they're broken up now, but they should really get getting back together because I feel like the time for that message, the time for sort of like a, a, a sort of a fun rock pop group that has this sort of populist Bernie Sanders-esque message um, may have finally arrived. I get knocked down. But what about her emails? You're never going to keep me down. <laughs> I get knocked down. Uh, well, anyway, uh, we're, we're, we're pissing the night away, pissing the night away. Uh, and we're, we're going to talk in a minute about, about Stephen King's It, um, which, Matt, you've seen the film, but I, I have not seen the film because I don't like scary things. And you're going to have to convince me why scary things are a fit topic uh, for movies. I think, I think that scary movies should be outlawed, and anyone who likes a scary movie is wrong. Uh, surely, my nuanced position will survive until the end of this podcast. Even if you don't. <laughs> okay. Um, but hey, before we, uh, before, we get, before we get into that, you know, uh, I, our own overthinker, Ben Adams, lives in Florida. And I know because I look at the little map that shows where our podcast co- downloads come from that, that we have listeners and we have overthinking it readers uh, in, in Florida uh, who are in the path of, of Irma. And, uh, you know, it has been a rough couple weeks for natural disasters uh in the united states harvey and uh and irma um 
just uh it's i don't know i feel like it's it's become a cliche to the point where you can kind of mock saying uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you so i won't say that i, I mean i i guess what i what i mean to say is we care about you uh if you're part of the overthinking it global community and uh and we hope you're safe and um you know if if you are affected by uh, any of the storms eh, drop a line Podcast at overthinkingit.com. Once you're safe, once you're through the worst of it, we'd, we'd be glad to know that you're, we'd be glad to know that you're all right. Um, hey, the other thing uh, that I want to say is that uh, we, uh, I, our own, um, our own Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee are off this week from the podcast uh, the, due to, due to other, other commitments and, uh, and things like this. But there is a, uh, there is a Pete cast in the members area. Now that that statement is complex and it might require some unpacking. Matt, when I say there is a peat cast in the members area, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I feel like wasn't like 15 years ago there was like a platform where people used to live stream like their entire life sort of the Truman show style. So I'm imagining it's just it's Pete and he's currently just sort of like playing crash bandicoot on a playstation 2 and uh and we're just watching him like his like expression as he just sort of like you know can't beat the third level i feel like we really missed the the current mania for just live streaming people playing video games because i remember you know uh when we when we were seniors in college uh we would hang out at matt's apartment not this Matt, the other Matt, and we would play just just uh, uh, GTA, play Mario Kart, a lot of Mario Kart, um, just endlessly, and we liberated a uh, projector, right, like a wall projector from the university, and we would play these games projected enormously on the wall of your apartment, and uh, eventually it got, uh, eventually through a, a, a combination of... of <laughs> Uh, of hard living and exhaustion, it became uh, uh, inadvisable to sit upright. So we pointed the projector at the ceiling. <laughs> Do you recall this? And we would lay on the ground and play Mario Kart on the on the ceiling of yeah. the apartment. And I feel like now that would be ratings gold. Now we would have a Twitch channel with like millions or tens of millions of followers or something like that, and people would just watch us like uh, uh, <laughs> play Mario Kart. And laugh our stoner laughs all the time. Yeah, we were letting people watch us play video games for free back then. We didn't we didn't understand how it was done. This has sort of been a problem with overthinking it, which is that we are like we're too public service oriented. We want to like we want to, you know, subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve for the good of the society rather than for uh for personal gain. But you know, we're yeah. all we're all a little older than than we are in those uh in those early heady days of college and the early heady days of the site where we could um where we could marshal 10 articles on uh on uh, including one that made the front page of Slashdot uh by our own Dr. David Schechner uh analyzing um the the uh, positional relationships of time travel that was, that was a really good article right uh, about how the time machine and back to the future is really a, a pretty awesome spaceship as well yeah it because it would have to move uh, a great deal in space 
because millions, the, if not billions of miles, if because the the Earth would be in a different place unless it was always the same day and you adjusted for, you know, the the weird kind of irregularities in the orbit of the Earth. And, you know, sometimes they're adding like scientists just add a leap second sometimes like it's just <laughs> like it's like an adjusting entry in an accounting ledger like eh, we're just going to just tack an extra second on to 2017 just so that we get back to to where we ought to be and just think of all those things that you would have to uh, there, should, you- there should be a way that we celebrate those i mean well first of all i've been saying this for a while that when there's a leap year there should be traditions associated with the leap day and of course now obviously there's the movie leap year and i'm not sure this is a real irish tradition but i guess the tradition is like it's acceptable for a woman to ask the man to marry her on it, which is weird because like this movie came out like five years ago. So it's, it's as far as I know, it's, it's totally acceptable for a woman to ask a man to marry her. But I guess Rachel McAdams feels like it's not unless you're in Ireland on Wait, that particular day. Sorry. Uh, well, actually Amy Adams. Is it I, okay? I, I have a chronic problem confusing, and the harder I try not to confuse them, the more likely I am to confuse. <laughs> give, give me a what's like an easy way to remember them. So Amy Adams is is from, uh, she's Lewis Lane. Je- Amy Adams is is Lois Lane. Uh, Amy Adams is Arrival, right? Okay, so what's what's Rachel McAdams? Is she Rachel McAdams is is the Notebook? But like, there's got to be like things more recent than the Notebook. Uh. Oh yeah, I mean she's she's been in in, in a bunch of things. Hold on, I'm I'm uh, Wikipediaing, uh, Wikipediaing her. She was the uh, the other doctor, and uh, she was the lady doctor in Doctor Strange. She was Doctor Not Strange, Doctor Normal, if you will. Right. Um, she right. also she was like the <laughs> okay. She she I, I'm coming back to me now. Yeah, she also. Um, was in like my favorite thing that she's ever done is the Canadian television show Slings and Arrows. Um, she was in a season of that, I think, playing Juliet, playing an actress who was playing Juliet. Slings and Arrows is kind of a fictionalized account of the the Stratford Festival in Canada, uh, and it you know it's it's right up my alley, right? It's like a behind the scenes uh, drama um, of of a theater company of like it's possible a, that you're, you're most of the, the target audience. <laughs> it's, it's, it's mostly me, but it's really, there's, there's like a Venn diagram of like people who watch this show and like, you're so, so many circles are intersecting right where you are. Right. Exactly. Just right where, just right where I sit. They actually like, they drew that Venn diagram around me. The, the people who the like the little Richard scary people like animals with hats that draw the uh, hats that denote their jobs that the, the Venn diagram drawing, inchworms uh inched around me to to you know draw those circles um and i was like what are you what is this for and it's for slings and arrows and i was like ah carry on carry on uh and uh and then i i you know said a little speech of shakespeare just to commemorate the uh to commemorate the moment today is called the feast of crispian um by the way, speaking of, of Venn diagrams where all the circles are intersecting i i googled rachel mcadams to see what she's up to now and she's in a movie with Rachel Weisz, where they are apparently uh, lovers in the Orthodox Jewish community. Okay. So, so that's, uh, that, is that disobedience? Yes, that okay. is in fact disobedience. All right. So, so we'll have a, I mean, we should have a, like a Venn diagram, not a Venn diagram, a flow chart or something for, for telling um, Rachel McAdams from, 
from Amy Adams. But yeah, we, like uh, the Bill Pullman, Bill Paxton flowchart that I've been working on for years. So this is all a long way around the barn to say that we are uh, we are not young as as we used to be, and and we have things like uh, we have things like children. Um, Matt, you have children. I've I've been told. I do. I have at least two. And and a lot of your pop culture consumption happens through them. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, if I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to put words in your mouth and say most. But uh, I, let me just let me just ask you, should we let the pigeon drive the bus? I, I Well, you know, it's funny that like the, the book is called Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, but it's sort of presented as like an axiom, you know, like like there's no, re- you know, and here are the reasons why not. Um and so that I don't know. I mean, maybe it's it's sort of like we don't let the tricks rabbit eat the tricks. But if he did eat the tricks, like, you know, would bad things like would he mutate into some horrible monster uh, or, or, or would it be fine? Would it be better for everyone if we, you let the tricks rabbit eat the tricks because he would stop trying to, like, build elaborate? I forget the the tricks rabbit schemes. I feel like they largely involved costumes. Yeah, like uh, like Scooby-Doo style. Right. Like and it was always the same. Like I would I would have got away with it if it weren't for you pesky meddling kids, you know, keeping me away from my from my fruity tricks. Yeah. You know what I remember about the tricks, Rabbit? I feel like there was a there was some sort of like a call in or write in campaign back in like the late 80s or early 90s where where they where they were asking kids, should the tricks, Rabbit get the tricks? And I remember and I may be making this up. And if I'm making this up, I'm I'm telling my therapist all about it because this is a fascinating thing to have made up. Um, but I, I remember it came overwhelmingly on the side that like, yes, let the tricks rabbit eat the tricks, which I think is fascinating because presumably they thought that the whole long running campaign with the tricks rabbit was like delighting kids, um, like giving the kids exactly what they want, which is like letting the tricks rabbit be, be foiled and like showing that the kids always outsmarted the tricks rabbit when in fact the kids were clamoring and, and furious that the tricks rabbit was denied these tricks arbitrarily. This is uh, this is really interesting. There's a Louis Menand, who is a, a, a literary scholar, wrote an article called "Cat People" in the New Yorker, and it's one of the uh, it's it is a chapter length analysis of the cat in the hat, uh, as well as a kind of intellectual history of the sort of phonics reading movement that gave rise to the cat in the hat and how it became um, a, a political hot potato and was sort of social, you know, what, uh, kind of the way it was um, in society. Uh, whereas the, uh, the pre, which is, you know, and the cat in the hat is like the, the I think the all time best selling children's book in English. Uh, you know, uh, it supplanted the Pope, the pokey little puppy, which no one used to say awful political things about, right? That the pokey little puppy was an agent of the counterculture and out to like yeah. destroy like, American values. See spot, see spot run. Um, that the, but the idea of the cat in the hat was that, that kids could learn reading with phonics, that it, that if you could learn hat, you should learn cat, bat, mat, and so on. Cake, rake, and you know, and so on. And that, and that's why like the rhymes are important. And, and that's, um, uh, that's things like that there. And I learned some fascinating, I learned some fascinating things about the, the history. For example, um, I am Sam, Sam, I am that Sam, I am that Sam, I am from Dr. Seuss's, uh, uh, green eggs and ham, right? That book has only one syllable words except for one. There is a single polysyllabic word in uh, in 
green eggs and ham. Can you think of it off the top of your head? I could not when I first uh, when the question was first put to me. See if I if I don't come up with this, I'm gonna can can we just sort of leave this hanging throughout the podcast so that like as you're talking about it, everyone knows that I'm just trying to remember word for word green eggs with ham. Don't let me. So uh, yeah, uh, don't don't let me um, uh, forget to reveal. Uh, and and yeah, it's left as an it's left as an exercise to to the listener at the end of the podcast. We'll we'll reveal what the single polysyllable in uh, in Green Eggs and Ham is. Anyway, so he t- he talks about in that Louis Menand in that article talks about um, how the the ca- the kids are supposed to. I oh, wait, I got it. I got it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, you oh you got it now. Anywhere. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So well. I, I literally recited the entire book like at the, beneath my breath. But that's but it's astonishing. And by the way, there's like I think there's only like 200 words in the entire Cat in the Hat. 200 distinct words. Um, and the you know like uh, literarily like in terms of figurative language, you could say that the cat's improvisations with the objects that he finds around the house are an allegory for Dr. Seuss's uh, uh, in, you know improvisation with the 200 words um, that he he. he had to do he had to to make into a story for the cat in the hat um by the way about um by the way zoice you 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 finish hold on zoice theodore zoice geisel uh was was the man's name and he went by dr seuss but uh but zoice in german anyway what were you saying no, I was, I was going to say, you know, I actually have a theory about the second Cat in the Hat book, The Cat in the Hat Comes Back, and about how it's a it's an allegory for the Cold War. Yeah, it's about nuclear but, annihilation. Like, like is little, it, I'm sorry, is this well known? Is it because I was really proud of myself, but then you're like, obviously, it's about nuclear annihilation. Yeah, Little Cat Z has Voom underneath his hat. You, know? I, I, you, you have no idea how deflated I am right oh, now. No, I'm so sorry. Did I, I, I? But you're right. I mean, you're you are correct. Well, no, I mean, but it's more than that. So the whole plot of the book is that there's a spot, there's a red spot, and it keeps in every, and they need to get rid of the red spot. But everything they do, it grows and it spreads, and it's covered, and and they get more and more violent in their attempts to eradicate it, and more and more sort of Byzantine, so that there, more and more cats enter the scene with guns and with bombs, um, and all they do is spread the red all around, and then they get down to the the final cats. And I actually, I did the math here, Matt. Let's assume that the cat in the hat is about two meters tall, okay? All right. And let's assume that his hat is one third of his height. All right. That's that's a big hat, but yeah, he's drawn with a big hat. So that's all right. I I think he's drawn, that's the best I could do. You could fudge the numbers a little, but then so so the equation is something is is like, you know, so if each, um, you know, in underneath, that hat is little cat A, and underneath little cat A's hat is little cat B. And if you keep going and calculating the heights of all those um, hats, the, the, the yeah, cats it's like one hat, over it's one over three to the twenty sixth meters, right, or something which like is that. Interesting because that is the size of a proton. <laughs> it's it's literally now obviously if you make different estimates as for the starting size of the cat and the relative size of the hat, you might end up differently. But like those, but you my still estimates. you still end up on the scale of a subatomic particle. Right, and it's literally like at at little cat Z, you arrive at the subatomic particle, and then little cat Z unleashes the 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 boom. Yeah, it's well the atom, the power of the atom, right? And the the only question is like, okay, if 
it works until then, but then the final page is is the the power of the atom fixes everything, and literally everything is back to the way. And and my best reading of this is that like everybody's dead, and this is one of those things where it's like an unrealistically happy ending, where not only is everything clean, but like the walk in the driveway have been shoveled magically through the boom. And I'm like, no, they're they're all dead. Uh, <laughs> clearly, clearly, this is this is some sort of afterlife. But it's a, it's a, it eliminated the pinkos, the pink stain, right? Like the the pinkos and the pinkness, the queerness of the pink stain that was disseminated through a textuality that that has no uh, that has no end. Anyway, I'm gonna link up this this article. But the the you know one of the points is that the kids are supposed to, I think, are theorized to identify with the cat and his natural sense of mischief. Um, but kids, I I don't know. I feel like kids are less concerned about mischief than they. They are sometimes about safety, right? And like, uh, what wondering where mother has gone off to, you know, is uh, is probably a little more compelling for the kids. What what sort of murderous or erotic errand, uh, mother? Mother and I, you know, mother, no, Sally and me that have lost our mother to is, is probably a little closer to the heart of the kids than, than it is. So like the idea that like the kids don't want the tricks rabbit to get the tricks. Well, I think the kids kind of identify with the tricks rabbit because it's, um, you know, because they are, uh, they are sort of always being denied things. If you're a kid, like the nature of being a kid is to be told that you can't have things by the grownups. And, uh, the, the tricks rabbit wants those tricks very badly. He can't have the tricks. And I think that this is like an emotional story that would be very compelling to a child. Uh, at least that would be, you know, no longer a child myself. That would be my theory about it. But, but I feel like, you know, when, when the, the adult advertising executives came up with this, it was supposed to be like all these children get to fulfill their fantasies of being like a mean girl because instead of like always being denied things, they get to deny things to the rabbit and they get to be like, silly rabbit, this is for us. You don't get this. And this is, and yeah, so it's, it's like, like it- turning, turning the tables and getting, getting to be nasty and i think maybe and and maybe they were uncharitable towards the kids because the kids obviously really wanted to see the rabbit get the didn't didn't have that sort of like uh you know like like wanting to wanting to pay it forward and i wonder if this is the thing that happens with don't let the pigeon drive the bus as well which is that like the kids come to kids who read this children's book come to identify with the pigeon and like maybe you know maybe we should let the pigeon drive the bus maybe he really wants to drive the bus uh you know yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The way it's supposed to work and the way I've, I've seen it work is that, like, you enjoy telling the pigeon no, is that the pigeon begs you to let him drive the bus and you say no to the pigeon. But I think I think there also is a, a part of all of us who would, who would very much enjoy saying, like, but what if? Like, yeah. like well, what's the worst that could happen? Of course, he could kill people. Some, kids, some kids just want to watch the world burn. Um, so, uh, this is a a long way around the barn to say that, that, uh, not, you know, we're, we're no longer, we put away childish things and then took them out again for our own children. The overthinking, the overthinkers did and, and, uh, overthinking it has for a long time been a labor of love, but we, um, about a, a year and a half ago, launched a membership program where uh, you can support Overthinking It. You can support what we do with a uh, monthly contribution. Uh, it's not a donation. We're not a charity, but uh, it, it is a uh, gift um, that you give. But we try to give a gift back. The, the main gift that we can give back is devoting the time and effort, uh, even in an atmosphere of, of scarcity, of time being a... a 
it's extraordinarily scarce resource these days. Uh, we can keep the site going, but we also have um, sort of little special bonuses that we give to that we give to our members. To every member, they get, for example, an ad-free uh, overthinking it experience. So if that you know, we we, uh, we could because we are supporting uh, your reading through your own contribution and not not through advertising. We're very glad to uh, to turn those off uh, for our members. Uh, members at the middle tier get access to a digital library where you actually have more uh, audio stuff that that we do uh, more um you know uh uh tv recaps more uh podcasts all sorts we've moved the question of the week into the members area uh so that's and then and then at the top level um we meet uh monthly with our members in a video chat so we actually all hang out together the full harvey members and the overthinking it writers and and those are uh those are sort of fun video chats and a, a great way to kind of connect with the the community of overthinkers around the country and around the world. So uh, please um, consider supporting overthinking it. One, one of the things that, that is uh, recently in the digital library for uh, the middle tier members and above, the well actually members and, uh, and above, is the Pete Cast, which is Pete Fenzel's solo podcast. If you, if you like Pete Fenzel and you wouldn't listen to this podcast if you didn't, you can get even more Pete. Pete in its undiluted, you know, pure uh, like weapons grade Pete, uh, just just uh, you know, flowing into your into your ear holes. Um, the uh, the Pete cast this month is about the Legend of Zelda, and Pete has some fascinating things to say uh, about you know uh, what what he makes of Zelda and what Zelda has made him uh, in in the Pete cast. So if you would like to become a member of Overthinking It, please uh, support us. Go to overthinkingit.com slash join and join at whatever level uh, you like. Overthinkingit.com slash join. Well, I know we're here to talk about it Matt, but um, the uh, I I uh, I don't want to neglect. We don't have you on the podcast that often, so I don't want to neglect to ask you. Just what do, what do you what are you watching or listening to or consuming these days? Like how how is your uh, how is your media diet um, coming along? And what's what's uh, on your what's on your playlist or your DVR or your podcast uh, app or your uh, you know I don't know your your games folder in your phone right like what's what's uh, what's going on with you? Uh, so there's there's a book series that uh, some of you may heard of. So it's it's five books right now, but we're all hoping that someday it gets to seven books. <laughs> um, and it's called Where's Waldo? <laughs> um, and I've been. I, I recently picked up uh, a Waldo book again. I haven't looked at them for a while, and I do. I do have kids, so it, it wasn't like I was literally like just sitting alone by myself. And I'm like, I'm gonna find Waldo. Um, and this time, I you know like like obviously the main challenge is to find Waldo, and then the the sort of subsidiary challenges are to find uh, what I refer to as the girl Waldo, which is of course her name is Walda Agla, uh, which is sort of the um, uh, Wario uh-huh. of the Waldo world. Um, and the wizard, the wizard white beard. Um, and then there are like, you know, further challenges where you have to go to the back of the book and they give you specific, um, you know, like things that you have to find or in, like, you know, visual puns you have to locate in each of the tableau. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm talking about the fifth Waldo book, which is the wonder book. And, and you know, where Waldo gets really micro, you need one of those, uh, small magnifying glasses they give with the, uh, the, the, uh, unabridged Oxford English dictionary. So you can really get the fine detail out. Yeah. 
And there's one page where it's, uh, uh, it's just full of, of uh, clones of, of sort of bizarro parallel universe versions of Waldo's dog. Um, uh, Wolf is the name of Waldo's dog. Huh. And so literally, like, there must be like 500 dogs on the page. And the challenge is to find which one is the real one. And the only way to tell is that Waldo's dog has five stripes on his tail and none of the others do. Jeez. They all have four stripes or six stripes. And so I have been staring at it must have been like five hours, five hours, if not 10 hours. Like I've, I've been staring at this thing and I find it meditative to <laughs> go through it. And here's the thing, like, you know, I think the, the right way to do it would be to break it down into a grid and, you know, like figure out like how long can you actually pay attention to this thing? Five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, get like a like a two inch by two inch square and really go through every tail and then check that off the list. But I, I don't go through it that way. I just sort of let my eye wander and I take in all the dogs and I admire all the little details and I count the stripes on the tails. So I am, uh, and, and part of why I love it is I'm sure that like literally in 10 seconds, by the time I finish the sentence, man, you could find out the location of that dog. You, you could Google which dog is real dog in Waldo book. And, and there would be a picture with like a red circle around it. Um, and it's, it's the, the, the sort of discipline that I need to resist the, the easy answer that, that I find, uh, sort of ennobles the whole enterprise. Yeah, I mean it. It's funny, like it. What it reminds me of is the kind of the the uh, vogue for adult coloring books. That and by adult, I don't mean like having to do with sex. I mean like for you know targeted at adults. Yeah, there's a, there's a diehard one I just saw at a bookstore. <laughs> well, I'm not sure the diehard one uh, quite lives up to the the purpose that I, at least I heard about for these, which was that it's like a it's a relaxing, calming meditation, right? And like, turns out coloring is fun and like turns out you know uh, uh it can de-stress you or something like that just you know play, filling in paisley patterns with with different colored pencils or, or something like this and like the idea that like we need to return to uh childish we need to return to uh childish things in order to make our um i don't know in order to like soothe the 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 problems the hardships of of adult life is is an interesting yeah. an interesting thing because you know who didn't uh need a an adult coloring book don effing draper he had he had he had mistresses. He did it that way. Yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I think one difference between like kids approaching Where's Waldo and adults approaching Where's Waldo is that when when a kid finds Waldo, it's cause for celebration. But when I find Waldo, I'm sad because that page is over. <laughs> you know, and it's like I wish I could unfind Waldo so I'd have the pleasure of looking for Waldo again. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I understand. It's the it's about the process and and sort of as as you age, I feel like time as time becomes the scarce commodity, you know, like anything that marks its passing can be a little bittersweet, right? Like uh, you even things that you know, even things that are notionally accomplishments can be a little bittersweet because they remind you that you're that much close, that, that you've lost that, that experience. Right. Yeah. There's a finite number of, uh, Waldo drawings in the world. And that once you've found Waldo in all, you know, in the, the supermarket and on the moon and, you know, under the sea, um, there's no more fighting him. He's, he's completely found. Um, well, yeah, it, it also is like, I, it's too easy to romanticize sort of kid stuff because uh childhood is is very often 
you know, I don't know, a, a terrifying phantasmagoria. Um, and, you know, children are, are scared by, by things like scary clowns. Boom. You see how I did that segue? That was so smooth. I didn't even like know what you were doing until we were already here. Until until we were already here. Can can you explain it uh, to the people like me who might not be Stephen King fans or uh, have any desire to see a scary movie? Yeah, well, I mean, it is a Stephen King book, so it's like eighteen thousand pages long, <laughs> um, which is probably you know, and and although it is very good, it probably doesn't need to be quite as long as it actually is. Um, so one of the interesting things about it is it's told, um, and and I, I should I should uh, clarify that although I am a Stephen King fan, I have not gotten around to reading it. So I've, I've I saw the movie. But I'm not intimately familiar with the book. I've I've only heard about it secondhand from my God. wife, There's who's obviously whole, yeah. deeply influenced by it, and also had a huge crush on Jonathan Brandeis and really loved the miniseries on ABC back in the early '90s. But that, like, I feel like there's a whole who's on first um, kind of thing just waiting to happen, right? Like, I haven't gotten around to reading it. Now, when you say reading it, do you mean reading mm-hmm. it? Or just reading something, yeah. Anyway, was, all right. The less said about <laughs> the rest said about about that, the better. But in a, in a nutshell, and and I guess now is when spoilers uh, become become a thing. But it is a you know I don't know two decades or more old property, right? So um, yeah, originally published in oh I can't find the original publication date on the internet yet, but uh, uh, it's it's old. So you know I don't know I don't think the spoiler warning really obtains anymore. But 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 tell 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 us what happens in it. So it is about a group of children, uh, a town in Maine. As uh, Stephen King is both like the best thing that's ever happened to Maine and the worst thing that's ever happened to Maine. <laughs> Because, like, you know, he's, everything is set in Maine, and, like, I'm, I'm sure that, like, a bunch of sort of, like, of the Stephen King movies were actually shot there to get the Stephen King seal of approval. But also, it makes Maine look like a terrifying, horrible place. Uh. Um, so, anyway, like, there's this town in Maine where kids have a tendency to to disappear and die in grisly ways. Um, and that the kids uh, – th- th- it centers on this one group of kids who are sort of, like, bullied, and they're sort of, like, uh, picked on and, and known as losers at their school. And they grow gradually figure out that there's a monster. There's a monster that is hunting the kids of the town that's lived there for decades, if not centuries, and sort of comes out on a cyclical nature. You know, every generation comes out, hunts the kids, and then, like, you know, goes into a deep slumber. Um, And, of course, like, the adults are not going to believe this, even if they told them. And so the kids take it upon themselves to, like, we have to kill this monster and we have to save the rest of the kids. Um, And then the interesting thing is that um, it's told in flashback because it it takes place in what at the time was the present day um, when the kids are now 28 years older because they, they, they figured out back in the day that the monster tends to come back every 28 years and they had made a pact the last time they fought this monster and maybe killed the monster, but, it's pretty clear they didn't actually kill the monster, um, that they would come back. If the monster ever come back, then they would come back. So it's about these adults that have sort of returned to the town that they grew up and are reconnecting to fight this monster that they that they confronted during the summer when they were. And one of the interesting changes of the that the movie makes is I believe in the book they were supposed to be younger, like supposed to be like almost 10, um, you know, like 10 years old in like the late it would be like the late 50s. And this movie makes them older, makes them like 13, um, which is a, it's kind of a substantial difference between like being like real children 
to being like, you know, young teenagers. Uh-huh. Um, I, right. It's, well, it's, uh, I don't know if, if it's like overly, if it's overly sentimental to think that young kids can't have that kind of ad- agency and kind of go out, like if Elliot and E.T. is maybe a little too young to be having the sort of adventures that he has, but then that's sort of the point, isn't it? That like, uh, they're sort of th- th- thrust into these situations that are age inappropriate and have to find ways of dealing with them, right? Yeah. So I mean, one of the things that's extremely striking about this movie um is that the, the the kids are have this freedom that's almost unthinkable nowadays. I mean, like, you know, if, you, if you're on any sort of parenting blogs, you hear about these stories about parents who go let their kids play at the playground down the street from their house, and they get Child Protective Services called on them right. for letting the kids out of their sight, even within a block of their home. And this was a time when I believe, I mean, I was alive at this time, and I feel like I remember this actually happening, and it seems incredible now in our sort of fearful ultra protective age that kids just used to wander around unsupervised for, for days at a time, seemingly, you know, (laughs) returning only when they needed like sunny delight. Yeah. Uh, well, sure. Like come back, come back for dinner. And it's, it's, uh, ironically, I think the, the United States is actually safer now by, uh, you know, statistically than it was back then. But, uh, the, the mania for, I don't know. You could argue that the mania is what's made it safer, but I don't think that would that would yeah. stand up to, to rigorous examination. But the mania has, if anything, increased. Not to say there weren't panics at the time. There, you know, there were panics about cults and 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 things like this. Um, all right. So they they uh, they fight the monster. I mean, do they win? Well, they 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 win, but but it uh, at the end of the movie it, it says like you know it chapter one. You know, and so that you're it's pretty clear that they're going to come back and 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 very clear if you know anything about the book. I think what's interesting and I can't really comment on because I haven't read the book is that the book is not like the first half is about what happens in the late 50s. The second half is about what happens in the late 80s. It's it's told by a flashback. And it's one of these stories where these adults are returning to town. You don't really understand why you don't really understand the relationship and a series of flashbacks kind of fills in the blanks and 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 tells you what you need to know about the monsters and so you're constantly cutting back and forth between the present and the past um what the filmmakers have chosen to do and and it'll be interesting to see how it pans out is basically to to uh uh, uh deconstruct that and to tell the entire story about the past uh, in this first chapter which is said i think in like 1989 and then uh, I believe in two years they've already – now that they've made a gazillion dollars, they've already announced that that two years from now there will be it chapter two and it will be set in the present day about hmm. these kids now returning 27, 30 years later right. to, to fight the monster again. Um, and what's interesting is – once again, I can't comment on this. I haven't read the book, but my wife is sort of curious how they're going to handle this because a lot of the sort of present day parts in, um, in the book – are interesting because you don't know the full story about what happened in the past yet because they haven't given you all the flashbacks. So you have to sort of guess at, at, at what's going on. So now that we know the incomplete story about the past, the story, and it would be like if you told Memento in order, right? Ah. It would still be, there's still a narrative there, but, but the way that you receive that narrative would be completely different because you know the, some of the mystery has been taken out of the equation, right? It still might be an interesting story, but it's no longer this sort of like drip, drip, drip of a reveal. 
the way it's handled in the, no- the sure. novel. Yeah, leading up to, I mean, leading up to this sort of famous Christopher Nolan, like, this changes everything reveal, which happens in Memento, happens in The Prestige, even happens in Dunkirk to, to a certain extent, right? Like, when you find out how the pieces of the story that you've been seeing progress along and not necessarily understanding the relationship, how you... Uh, you find out how they relate fundamentally, and and a little bit. It's a it's a cheap way of building suspense because it it just it relies on arbitrarily withholding information from yeah. from the audience. But it's I mean you know it's interesting. Before we get into a, a big discussion of the movie, I am fascinated by the idea of the sequel because not having read the book, I don't know what happens in the sort of present day sequences, and it's a little confusing to talk about because it's it's almost exactly like you know thirty years after the novel was published, and so what what was the present day uh, when the novel was first published is the time period of the flashbacks in this new version, um, but there's a big difference between children going off to fight this supernatural monster with sticks and, and, and their bicycles um, and adults in their late thirties or early forties coming back to fight the monster. when presumably they could, they could buy all the firearms and explosives that they want because they're grownups and you know, they can come prepared. And this is America and we can defeat monsters here with firearms and explosives. So I'm, I'm just curious, like the sequel, what the dynamic is there because so much of the, the mileage that this movie gets is these sort of children uh, that are in these incredibly dangerous situations in which, like, they're understandably terrified and ill-prepared. And it's like, you know, how are, you know, like, watching these kids in danger is a large part of the sort of the the horror of the story. Mm. And if they were adults, it, it doesn't have the same impact. No, yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh, that's very interesting. So, so like the first film thematically, what is it about? Is it sort of this like this sense of kind of Stephen King type menace to children that also? Oh, we should also say that like this film cleaned up at the box office this weekend. I think like over a hundred and ten million dollars. Uh, the second biggest R-rated opening of all time after Deadpool. Uh, I had not adjusted for inflation, I guess, but you know, Deadpool with the Deadpool in this. I mean, it's up there in any case. I mean, it's, e- it's easily the number one horror opening of all time. Huh. Yeah. Um... And it's, it's, it's just the, to think about why. Like, there are a lot of horror movies. Um, what is it about this one that struck such a chord? And, I mean, you know, I, I guess what I can suggest is two things. First of all, I mean, I would say that you know, there, there's something about the mood of the times that's sort of primed for horror. I don't know, you know, I don't have the statistics in front of me of whether the genre as a whole is doing particularly well, but it would not surprise me to learn that it is because it's that sort of unease about the world. It's sort of the feeling that the ground is unstable, that 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 everything could fall, you know, the zombie apocalypse could break out overnight and and everything could crumble down, right? I'm not. We don't need to get into specifics, but there there's sort of an unease out there that makes people ready for horror movies. But there's also, I think, and what separates this movie is this this sort of very strong undercurrent of nostalgia. Um, both because, I mean, first of all, it's a period piece. It's a period piece set in the late '80s, and it's got you know you see the movie marquee, and it, and it says you know I think uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Five is on there, and, and some other you know movies that I was like, oh yeah, 1989. Uh, there's some songs on the soundtrack, um, but it's nostalgia because of the. It feels old school in the type of movie it is. I mean, because I suppose it is a cultural artifact of that time. The sort of idea of like uh, boys 
you know, boys in, in suburbia, uh, out on an adventure feels, it reminded me very much of two movies. Um, you know, especially like all the scenes where the boys are like riding their bikes around around town. Uh, E.T. and The Goonies. Mm-hmm. You know, both both these movies from the '80s, where these sort of these these sort of uh, groups of groups of kids get on their bikes and go out um, and sort of leave the world of like domesticity and enter this sort of like dangerous but exciting world of like adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, I mean, that that element of freedom, that element of like the kids are just going off to swim at the quarry and there's no adults in sight, seems so alien to the world we live in today. Um, you know, that, that the kids are so divorced from the adult world. Like there's a scene in the movie where one of them is, is actually like a bully attacks him and actually like slices him up with a knife. What? You know, he gets like, he gets like, I mean, the bully is particularly like sadistic, you know, he's straight up like Stephen King bully where he's like, you know, the bully of your worst nightmares. Uh, and the, the, the bully actually like cuts him with a knife, but it's the, Um, it's the, it's the emotional cuts that, that last the longest. Right. (laughs) I don't know, man. These look, these look like they (laughs) must've let the scar, but then here's the thing. It's like, it doesn't even occur to that kid or any of the other kids who then like, you know, find him and, and, and want to help him, uh, that like, maybe we should tell an adult about this, or maybe we should bring him to the hospital. They go to the drugstore, they get like a bunch of gauze and like disinfectant and they like patch him up. Yeah. And there's, there's almost, there's not even like a discussion about like, should we like bring adults into this? It's like, no, like we're kids. And even when things get like dangerous and potentially deadly, it's like we we're on our own. Yeah. Um, that, well, that is an interesting thing. I mean, it's, and it's an interesting counterpoint to the nostalgia that, that you talked about, right? Like, I mean, one of the, one of the things, one of the things that has entered the political discourse for better or worse, mostly worse, is this idea of a nostalgia for a, a reality that never really existed of like, a uh, uh, simpler time, you know, when, when we, we weren't, we didn't have to, I don't know, pick your, you know, pick your political bugbear, right? Like we didn't have to be so PC or we didn't have to share things with people in the, in the same ways that we do now, uh, or we didn't have to, you know, um, we didn't have to this or that. And like, I feel like harking back to the eighties makes sense because that, that was part of the, you know, Reagan described America as a shining city on a hill. There was this, like, there was this fantasy version, um, of, you know, national self-conception in the discourse that, that ran parallel to the actual reality of America, which, you know, was not, and has never been anything like that. Uh, but, but the, um, you know, I don't know that the, this doesn't, but, but going back to a time when kids were unsupervised seems to run counter to that trend a little bit, right? Because it, it introduces a whole level of, you know, of menace, right? And like menacing kids in a, in a, you know, sadistic and deadly way, it seems to be a, a, uh, stock and trade of, of Stephen yeah. King. And, and it sort of runs counter to the, it's not a kinder, kinder, gentler time, right? Like, would, wouldn't we rather have, uh, wouldn't we rather have now with, you know, sort of legislating all the risk out of children's lives and, and, uh, you know, controlling and micromanaging all the, the, uh, spontaneity and, and chance for harm, um, out of their, uh, out of their lives. Is, is that not preferable to getting like literally cut open by a bully? 
I mean, I think what's very interesting about this movie, one of the many things that's very interesting about this movie, because I think it's it's very it's very well done. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on here, but it really seems to be like a perfect Rorschach test of like, what do you think about this freedom? Because on the one hand, I think the movie is saying this is good that these kids were allowed to like grow up and face their fears. And like it's 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 good. It's necessary that like these kids had to deal with this stuff on their own. But on the other hand, it's demonstrably false. Um, because, I mean, like, the, the very first scene of the movie um, is as a, a much younger kid goes out to play by himself in a driving rainstorm. Um, and it's it's this sort of, like, infamous, almost, like, iconic scene that they 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 do very well, and they do it before you see the opening title. Um, and it's it's a scene, like, e- even if you've seen the, um, the poster, it's this sort of clown menacing this kid in a yellow rain jacket. Um, and, I mean, the, the whole iconic thing about the, um, the, the sort of clown hiding in, like, a sewer grate, right? I mean, like, even if you don't know anything about the movie, you probably are familiar with this image where this sort of like the, the sewer grade and that sort of water draining into the, you know, and like, that's, that's where the clown gets you. So that's handled really early. And that, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of like, isn't it nice that these kids are allowed to go out and play by themselves? But on the other hand, it's like, no, it's not nice because if, if adults were watching them, then the clown wouldn't have grabbed him and sucked him down into the sewer. Spoiler alert. Um, but I mean, well, here's the thing. Uh, so, so I'm gonna spin the other side about like you know why it's good that these kids have this freedom. That the kids mentioned throughout the movie, you know, and it almost becomes a cliche that like, you know, you know, it's summer. We should be like outside playing. We should be outside playing. And it and it struck me thinking about this movie that the adults are almost entirely inside. Almost all the adults we see in the movie are inside the houses watching TV, inside the library, working as librarians, and all the kids are outside. And the kids are the only ones outside. Um, and they might as well be in different worlds. And there's a sort of there's a sort of feeling that, at least in the summer, that the kids belong outside and the adults belong inside. And that's that's the natural order of things. There's a scene uh, after one of the kids breaks an arm and his mom is about to drag him off to the doctor to get the arm patched up and is sort of like cursing out the other kids about you guys are terrible influences. I'm never going to let my kids see you again. And the kid, uh, meanwhile, with the broken arm, is in the passenger seat of the car getting ready to be driven away. And he's got like his nose pressed against the glass, right? The windows rolled up. And there's this real sense that like he's now he's trapped. He's trapped in a box. Um, and isn't this like a terrible thing that this kid who like, you know, was, was wandering around is now like his mom is never going to let him out of this. You know, there's this feeling that like, he's going to be trapped in this car for the rest of the summer. And indeed there's, there's sort of a parallel scene later in the movie where he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to go and rejoin my friends to hell with my parents say where he runs out of the house. He bursts out of the house with his mom chasing him and like runs into the outdoors. And there's a sense of like freedom and emancipation. Uh, there's another scene where like a kid, uh, is trying to leave to join the rest of the kids. And he finds that he, uh, her dad has put a lock on the inside of the door. So there's this real sense that like the kids belong outside and the adults belong inside in any sort of like attempt of the adults to keep the kids inside is really like doing them a disservice in like messing with the natural order of things. Hmm. Is it, which I mean, sort of seems pertinent to today and kind of anxieties about screen time and things like this, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, and there's um, there's at least one scene that I can think of. There's a where where it's an idyllic 
not scary at all scene where they go swimming at the swimming hole uh-huh. and nothing scary happens. And it's a beautiful, it's like a summer memory we wish we can all have where we went with our best friends and we like jumped off into the water and we swam all day and it was great. Um, and it's, and it's interesting. I think that, um, there's, uh, the, the sort of the place where where it lives and they have to go to fight it is not outside. Is in a house? Is in like an old abandoned haunted house? And so there's a sense almost that like if you just stay outside, like it gets you. If you go, he drags you into a sewer. He drags you into a house, and that's where you get in trouble. If you stay outside, it, like the kids will be fine. Uh, you have to you have to be tricked. Um, into going inside, and that's when you either get like your childhood taken away or your life taken away. Hmm. Is so? Is there like I, my elementary knowledge of of film criticism on horror? You know, has has to do with kind of is that sometimes horror can have to do with sort of repression or you know like a, a, a sort of dark psychological, unacknowledged psychological force that that erupts in uh, erupts in deadly and and terrifying ways. Is that I mean, is that the case here? Does the clown, does like it or Pennywise the clown like represent anything? Like, is it, do you feel like it's a, uh, is there an aspect of repression or anxiety that, that the film, I don't know, lends itself to, to reading that, that, um, adds a greater kind of metaphorical significance to it? I mean, that's an interesting thing. To think about, I mean, I don't know if I have a, a, a complete answer there. It uh, appears in he he appears in visions, he appears in nightmares, mm. and his form sort of changes depending on who you are. Part of his it's very sort of Nightmare on Elm Street, and I don't know the chicken and egg between this and Nightmare on Elm Street, where like he knows what your fears are and he plays on them, mm. and so that it's almost like it is something. You know, I I want to quote. Um, uh, the uh, three amigos here. It's like for some of us, El Guapo is a lack of education, <laughs> uh, and then it's like you know. So so um, depending on what you're like, there's one kid and his parents died in a fire, and he gets these horrible visions of like a uh, burning building and these sort of like charred hands reaching for him, like from beyond, like a door, you know, and like that's that's his fear and that's how it gets to him. Um, it's interesting, you know, it's like you think about horror movies and, and the monsters, there's almost like two types. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a monster that um, it's not trying to be scary. It just is scary because of the way it is. And I'm trying to think like almost like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? Like Leatherface is not trying to scare you. Like Jason is not trying to scare you. Jason is just like he's a camper who died and is now because he's rotted at the uh, spoiler alert here. He's like rotted at the bottom of a lake and he's ashamed of his face and he wears a hockey mask to cover it up. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, Jason, Jason is trying to kill you, but he's not trying to be scary. He's not sitting around thinking like, how can I I really scare these kids. He's just trying to kill you. Um, and a bunch of horror movies are like, uh, well, a bunch of monster movies are like that. Where like the monster may be scary, but the monster's not trying to be scary. The monster just wants to eat you because that's the monster's life cycle. Um, and then there are some movies, and once again, thinking of Nightmare on Elm Street, and this one especially, where the monster is very much explicitly 
feeding off fear to some extent. Uh, the monster might want to kill you, but it really wants to scare you. And it sits up at night thinking of ways to be scary. And the reason that that Pennywise looks like a clown is it's it's interesting. It's sort of a double duty um, appearance uh, because on the one hand, if you're like a young enough and naive enough kid, although honestly, it's difficult for me to believe. Talk about suspension of disbelief that any kid of any age would look at that clown and not be instantly creeped out um, requires you know, it's a leap uh, of logic, uh-huh. but, but there's also, so it's like the clown um, is both like purposely terrifying, but also potentially sort of purposely alluring if you're innocent enough not to get the obvious menace there. Yeah, um, sure. Um, I, I, but this is so, I mean, that's interesting because your typology involves in-world relationships, right? Like diegetically, the monster, the, like the, the evil force is either trying to scare you or not trying to scare you in particular. I mean, do, do you feel like that extends to the relationship between horror movies and, and the audience? Like there are, you know, there are movies that want to provide a lot of sensation in terms of like jump scares and stuff like that and then there are then there are movies that are maybe a little quieter but but you know want to creep you out or want to uh i don't know make you confront something that is sort of terrifying on a on a bigger level like and i i'm thinking of like the first saw movie which like if i you know if i recall your description of it doesn't have a lot of like scary stuff jumping out but is more like more a uh, horrifying than it is like scary on a on a minute to minute basis. It does. My least favorite scene in the first Saw movie is is such a gratuitous jump scare scene where there's there's a, a character who's a photographer and he feels like somebody's in his apartment but he's not sure and the lights are out and so what he starts to do is use the flash on his camera to illuminate the apartment for just split seconds and it's literally you know what's going to happen the second he starts doing it it still takes about two minutes before it happens is that like you know flash at the apartment nothing's there and he takes a few steps a flash of the apartment nothing's there and you just know that one you know at one of those flashes you don't know whether it's going to be the third one or the tenth one there's going to be a flash and there's going to be something horrible and then there's going to be a really loud noise and that's going to be the end of the scene and it totally happens but I, I i totally get what you're saying which is that like there's a level of like psychological horror i mean like i think you know hitchcock i don't i, I feel like he might have been like offended maybe I don't know if horror was an established genre back then, but like he was very much against jump scares. I think he had like a famous uh, speech or, or, or story about like um, like a bomb going off beneath the table. Is that like he's not interested in the scene where the bomb goes off and surprises everybody. He's interested in the scene where you know the bomb is there, but nobody in the cafe does, and you're cutting to the bomb and you're cutting to the people in the cafe and the suspense. Right. So he's not interested in surprising the audience. He's interested in, in giving you the information and letting you bite your nails. Sure. That's uh, wondering I mean, what's going to happen. Yeah. Like a kind of a use of dramatic irony to make you to kind of amp up your adrenaline or 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 whatever. Like, you know, I don't know. I find jump scares deeply, deeply unpleasant and not like the sort of not like the sort of unpleasant like a roller coaster can be where it's like, oh, my stomach is going all around, but it's fun. It's exhilarating. It's nice. You know, like uh, it, it it doesn't recontextualize in, into pleasure uh, for me um, the way other I, I don't know the way other like uh, acquired acquired taste do. And, and I just sort of don't I don't understand the the. I don't understand the pleasure in people taking it because I don't 
take it, uh, I don't take it myself, but you know, as we were preparing to have this conversation, you, I would me something, which was very interesting, which is like, well, why do people watch sad dramas? Right? Like it's, uh, you know, why would you want to be, why would you want to be sad? And, and, you know, I don't know, I, I concede your point a little bit there that like, I guess that there is this sort of hunger for, um, some sort of like, I don't know. I heard someone describe entertainment once as the emotional transportation business. And like, I I guess if you're a real hardcore tourist, you want to go as far as possible in the direction of whatever emotional transportation you're on. Right. And that, uh, uh, even in the, the early days of dramatic criticism, right? Like uh, Aristotle said that, that catharsis was important. The kind of the, the horrified recognition and the, the, the shock and the pity and fear, um, that dramatic catharsis, provided uh, was good for the polity, right? Like was good for um, the the political community, and that like it had a purifying effect um, somehow because we sort of see uh, in that you're you're it is the sort of um, psychological theory of horror, right? Like you're supposed to see yourself. It's supposed to like awaken a, a sense of recognition or something like that in, in, in yourself. And that that's like, uh, that's good. But I, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that the scene in saw where the, the room is illuminated by camera flashes and, and, uh, suddenly, you know, someone is in one of them and, you know, there's a huge soundtrack, uh, event and it, it cuts away. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that is, great for the republic right but but yeah. um but you know i don't know it's it's uh and and i'm not i i really like i try to live my life by not yucking another person's yum and and i i sort of understand in theory why they would be fun but it, it it's something i find so deeply unpleasant yeah i mean I'm, I'm not an expert on horror movies i'm a fan not an expert but but i'm reminded so there's a theory uh about uh horror movies called the final girl theory yeah uh which i, I had to google it. it's from a 1992 book by a uh, carol clover and the book is called men women and chainsaws gender in the modern horror film and the theory is basically like you know throughout the movie throughout most of the movie the the viewer shares the perspective of the killer basically meaning that and this is we're talking about the most stereotypical horror film which is usually like a group of like attractive teenagers uh gets into a you know goes goes to a secluded location or their car breaks down in a secluded location and they are then like picked off and hunted and killed gruesomely one by one and throughout this you're looking for you're looking forward to the kills right you you come to one of those movies because you're like oh boy i hope some people are killed in grisly and inventive ways um but then what happens is that usually what happens is like you get down to the point where there's there's one girl left there's the last one and then things shift and it's like like a um you know uh it's like a switch is triggered and the audience starts to root for this person the audience no longer is rooting for the last person uh to get to get uh killed and so that the the you know like jason jason's the only one left the viewer wants that that person to escape and maybe even to like turn the tables right is to like get mad pick up a machete and lash out and like finally get revenge for like having killed all her friends. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Cause it's like, it's the sort of like two phase catharsis where on the one hand you're rooting for the monster and, and you want the monster to just like, you know, wreck bloody havoc with everything. But then you want the monster to be taken out at the end and you need that sort of like 
you, you need to see both sides. Well, this is, I mean, you know, I call it the donkey effing conundrum, right? Which is the dissonance between, between what you want. And, and I actually, you know, um, I feel like this is due for a longer treatment because because I, I get challenged sometimes when I bring this this concept up uh, with with reason I think but um, you know the the dissonance between uh, the pleasures that you take in something and the kind of the the final or official version of the pleasures that you take in something right like it's not you don't you're not really interested in this the spate of marriages at the end of a, a Shakespeare comedy you're interested in the time in the woods right like when when Titania f's a donkey. Um, that's the fun, that's the fun stuff, right? Like that's the, you know, and, and I guess my, my read on that is like the, the turn happened. The turn is a, is a kind of psychological self-preservation that would, that we go through because we don't want to see ourselves as being identified with the, with the evil killer, right? Like we don't want to see ourselves on the side of the, the malevolent force that cuts down those, those poor teenagers. Uh, and all they wanted to do was have a fun weekend camping, uh, up at the lake and, you know, a little hanky panky on the side, never hurt anyone. Until it killed yeah. everyone. I mean, th- that that old conundrum definitely applies to this movie because I mean, the the clown is a large reason why we go to this movie, right? Like, we want to see scenes with the clown, um, and he truly is uh, great. I had not seen the um, the ABC miniseries where Tim Curry played the the clown, but this is a really great take because it's it's not just that he's playing a malevolent evil clown; he's playing like an entity you know that's the whole thing that this is this thing isn't human and this thing is pretending to be a human and not even really that convincingly and so there's this whole thing where he's like you know he's sort of a clown but he's got this sort of like very otherworldly offness to him Mm -hmm. and and i think they they nailed that even before they had any of the special effects Mm -hmm. um you know about the 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 jerky way he moves and the sort of like you know the things that happen to his face at certain points you can you can imagine i'm sure you will imagine as you're trying to sleep tonight um but it it is that kind of a thing where like we want to see the clown do his worst and be terrifying and take out these kids um but we also want to see the kids take out the clown yeah uh, well, that's, I mean, I don't know. Isn't that, isn't that like life? You know, we want to sort of go to the edge, but just enough, you know, the, the, the hunger for, you know, the hunger for sensation is not, is not total. Um, we're not, we can't be the cat in the hat. We, you know, we are still hoping for mom to come back and, and, uh, take care of us in the end. I don't know. Remember the, uh, remember cruel intentions very well. So, right. No, that that's so cruel intentions. Obviously I think we're, we're of the perfect age to have loved cruel intentions. Um, and I will probably be watching it again tonight before I fall asleep. <laughs> um, but it's, it's this whole movie about, I would say like, you know, this sort of hedonistic, maybe borderline sociopathic teenager who's just sort of like, um, you know, serial effing his way through like the 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 socialite uh, hot teens of, of Manhattan, and but he's, he's saved by the love of Reese Witherspoon. Right. Well, that's the point. Is that like on the one hand, at the beginning of the movie, you're supposed to enjoy. It's like he's riding around in his his sporty car and he's wearing cool clothes and he's like doing and he's you know he's he's doing what he's living the life that you only wish you were like a big enough jerk and a rich enough jerk to be able to live uh, in your in your jerkiest fantasies. But then at the end he repents right he he is right he's redeemed by the lover with witherspoon and so that he writes this sort of like manifesto about how wrong he was 
to 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 be this sort of like self-centered and vapid and then uh and and for good measure spoiler alert for a movie that's 20 something years old uh he also dies yeah um you know so so he atones in that way he has he has to die to make up for like the fact that like he he led selma blair on and there's this sort of like i remember as as a teenager feeling a little annoyed by the ending, which felt like a little bit, uh, after school special. Sure. Like you see what happens kids. Um, where it's like, but, but, but there's something. Yeah. I mean, that, I feel like, always... the, I feel like the real lesson of that movie is don't catch feelings, you know, like <laughs> life would be so much better and you don't die. You don't get like hit by a car or something like that. Whatever he was, if you, you know, if you don't fall in love with, with Reese Witherspoon and you can keep, you know, life, life has a, uh, life uh, to, to a guy like that. Life is just an endless parade of Selma Blair's to corrupt. And, yeah. and, uh, as long as you can keep yourself on that superficial level, you're set, man, you're set. Yeah, but of course, I mean, that template is super. And before anyone well actually me is in the comments, uh, that movie was an adaptation of Dangerous Liaisons, which is, of course, a much older story. Is it actually like a like a restoration drama? No, it's a it's a play by um, I think Christopher Hampton. So I mean, it's, it's set it's set in the past, but it's not it. Um, the yeah. original play. Well, the vision. Yeah, the version that we're used to is the. Um, no, no, it is. It's a 1782 novel originally, oh. so it is kind of uh, of that era. I don't know. I mean, it may have been but heavily the version, adapted. Yeah, the version that we are, the version that we're thinking, the the version that we associate it with is um, Christopher Hampton's uh, Les Liaisons Dangereuses, uh, which yeah. is 85. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes. But that that story where it's like we we enjoy watching that person be or or you know and by the a, way a comedic prime, inversion of that prime, yeah, go on. prime Malkovich in in the oh, film, yeah. in the film adaptation in Glenn, Glenn Close right yeah the in nice, the uh, as the as the great Sarah, in the Sarah Michelle Geller Sarah role. Michelle Geller I almost said Sarah Jessica Parker but that would be not right. All right. Here's another set of two actresses that we, that we, uh, we can't tell apart. Matt, I think we're going to have to leave our, our conversation there. It's, a, it's always, you know, I mean, I don't know. The great work continues, right? Like, and, and uh, overthinking it is a conversation that, that never ends. And we, we feel like Much we barely... like looking for the dog's tail with five stripes. Well, except that, except that that does end and you, uh, you know, you go, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's just to, to wrap everything together. It is an interesting thing because we're talking about, we're talking about changes the, the like the point at which a horror movie changes the point at which something like that turns like when is the point in life um when is the point in life when you when you change from celebrating your victory uh over over waldo um to uh to kind of mourning waldo's victory over you i don't know uh but we're definitely past that point and so you should become a member of overthinking it at overthinking it.com slash join uh matt it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast thank you very much yeah, for fun, eh? i'll be back in another what like 18 months something like that yeah whether we have anything to talk about or not just once every 18 months or so let's let's uh, check let's in date. um thanks very much to all of you for for uh listening if you uh have been or are in the path of any storms stay safe out there uh, let us know how you're doing when uh, an opportunity presents itself and uh, come back next week for the podcast. And until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't. doesn't Boo!
<laughs> that was a jump scare. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, that was a, the the rare audio only jump scare. <laughs> <laughs>